Um, go ahead and open your Bibles up to Daniel chapter 4. Uh, we're going to be reading a lot of text today. It's a great story. This is, this is one of those beautiful stories. And as modern readers, I think it's, it's particularly easy for us to, to forget that. This isn't just a, uh, uh, an ancient mythology. This isn't some ancient Near Eastern tale that we're supposed to derive you know, some special themes from. Uh, nice principles, general things that are going to help us walk and, and live a successful life. This happened. This happened. This is history. And the stunning part about it is exactly the content of the story, how absolutely incredible of a story it is when you realize this happened. This actually happened. Time and space, our world. Uh, So please follow along with me. I'm going to be reading in different chunks as we go along. So I'm going to start with just the first three verses of Daniel, and then we're going to pray. So again, we're Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I'm going to read all the way to verse 3 right now. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your good hand upon your people. Father, I pray you protect your people right now from the enemy of our souls, Lord God. Father, we would heed your word. Lord, that right now you would awaken our hearts by your Holy Spirit to receive the word with humility to receive the word with joy, that we would have contrite hearts before you, the living God, that we might grow in your ways, trust your commandments, treasure you in all that we say, do, and think, and that we might walk in victory this week after the likeness of Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, amen. All right. Uh, This is a quote from N.D. Wilson, an author. The old gods are dead. Jupiter... Jove, Poseidon, Baal, Ashtaroth, they're gone, they're dead, they've been destroyed. Long ago they've been destroyed, but there's another old god that's not yet dead, and that's man, that's us. What does that even mean? That's bizarre, right? The gods of the Old Testament, are, they're, they're relegated now to, ancient, again, ancient Near Eastern myths, Temples are destroyed. They're being excavated. The statues of the gods that were once thought to be so powerful are now put in big museums as archaic understandings of a bygone culture. But here we are today. Man is still alive today. Now, some of you heard that right now and you're thinking, that's just bizarre. That's just crazy. No one in their right mind looks around at the human populace and comes to the conclusion that these creatures looking around just like you and me here uh, that, uh, you know, we, we, that stutter, that trip on sidewalks, that drool on pillows. Some of us drool on pillows uh, that need to be fed and carried around uh, for the first several months of their life outside the womb, that these creatures, that people say next to you could ever be confused with something deserving the title of deity. That's bizarre. That's insanity. It doesn't make sense. And yet, when you look throughout human history, you see just that. You see people, people that do all the same things that I just listed, 
setting themselves up as objects of worship and others buying into it. We saw this last week in uh, King Nebuchadnezzar when Matthew brought us through chapter 3 of the book of Daniel, and you see it show up in several other instances throughout history, even in the Bible, right? The pharaohs. Uh, you see it in rulers like uh, Alexander the Great, the great conqueror, the great Greek conqueror, or Antiochus Epiphanes, who is the great persecutor of the Jews pre-Christ. You see, in Roman emperors like Julius Caesar, Caesar Augustus, and Tiberius Caesar, they, they called them the imperial cults because these were men who demanded worship. These were men, people, who demanded the worship of the people who were under them, the citizens of their kingdom. All of these made some claim to deity. And while they didn't all have you know, the, the big, enormous 90-foot statues to commemorate their godlike standing, they could all look upon their great kingdoms, upon the cities, all these things that they founded and controlled and say, I did this. I made this. This is mine. And while there may be no explicit claim to deity in most of our rulers today, the trend of extolling oneself as some sort of sovereign, as some sort of king, is certainly visible, right? I think you have statues of Lenin, statues of Stalin, Right? You have statues of Saddam Hussein that only in the last decade have been toppled. Or you have the massive monster statues of the Qin Dynasty in North Korea. And these aren't just confirmations of that this stuff is still going, but they also, I think, remind us, they're really, really grim reminders of the results of exalting that which is not God as though it were. Right? The, the people who were under the pharaohs, who were under Antiochus Epiphanes, the people who were under uh, the Greek rulers, the, the imperial cult, they know what it's like in North Korea, in the Middle East, communist Russia, places where people went through unspeakable suffering. They know it all too well. And as we come to our text today, this is our final encounter with, with Nebuchadnezzar. This is the last time he's going to be uh, the last part of his story in this book. We're going to see the same narrative playing itself out in this ruler's life. But what we're going to see from the biblical standpoint is God's response to this man. We're going to see God's response to the pride and the pomp of this man. And hopefully also what sort of words of comfort God may have for his people then and when they were in exile and in our condition today. So uh, if you want to, again, if you want to read with me, we're going to read a really large portion right now. Verses 4 through 33. This is uh, Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 through 33. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospered in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. Remember, he's, this is a, a message to all the peoples in the known world at the time. He's telling them the story. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who is named Belshazzar after the name of my God and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, Oh, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, ah, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too difficult for you. Tell me the visions of my dream that I saw in their interpretation. 
The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a, a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven. And it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. And the birds of the heavens lived in its branches. And all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed. And behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lob off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation. Because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field uh, found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Good so far, right? Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field and let him be wet with the dew of heaven and let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the most high which has come upon my Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdoms of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. 
All right, from the beginning of the book of Daniel, we have, we're given two different but intertwining stories, right? They're following two different groups of people. One of them is the story of these four Jewish exiles and the faithfulness of God amid the hardships of living in a foreign land under foreign rule as sojourners in a land that is not their own. And on the other hand, the other story is that of a king who brought these men into exile and has borne witness to the incredible power of their God who intercedes on behalf of his people in a way that no other God does or is able to do, right? That's what Matt read last week from chapter three. No other God is able to intercede for his people like this God does. And what we see in this king is a man who's obsessed with his control, a man who is on the power trip of all power trips. His actions continually portray a man whose sense of control shows up in in just tons of detestable ways, right? Making unreasonable demands, commanding worship for a statue representing some sort of deity, whether his own or or one of his gods. His knee-jerk, violent response to the Jewish exiles who refused to pay homage to this statue And then the decree that he issues after the fiery furnace incident that threatens, you know, extinction to anyone who speaks against the Jewish God. So he sees an act of God's intervention. God intervened on behalf of his people. And it just kind of goes over his head. And he says, you know, anyone who talks about this God, we're going to rip them limb from limb, kill their families and burn their homes. (laughs) That's how we roll here in Babylon. And you just think, you just missed the point, buddy. You just missed the point. You forgot the dream that you were told earlier and you've missed the point of this absolutely miraculous, incredible thing that just happened before your eyes for your sake that you might see, that you might learn and know of the living God. And yet, just think about this though. While the king may be possessed with this desire, what's God's response to him? Think about the mercy of God in this. It's sign after sign communicating to this man that there is a God and that he works on behalf of his people, even amid captivity and exile. God is showing this man, Nebuchadnezzar, and the citizens of his kingdom, mercy. This is a plea of mercy. This is God's active kindness and mercy on this king and on his kingdom. But the king, despite the wonder of all these signs, he doesn't yield his pride or his corrupt ways. We, we read that. We just read that, right? Daniel's telling him, break off your sins by practicing righteousness, your iniquity, by showing mercy to the oppressed. So God brings about a final, it's time, a very personal sign to bear upon the king. It's this, it's this, uh, it's this crippling mental illness that in all actuality, it actually just gives the king what he's been asking for. It's actually just helping the king to see what he's actually saying. This is you, king, in isolation from God. This is you, king, reigning as you would were it not for my hand. This is you, king, as you are, in isolation from others and in isolation from me. This is what we read in the text as follows. So I'm going to read now from uh, verses 28 to 33. All this came upon Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? 
really quick little thing here. The walls of Babylon were, it was, it was reported that the walls of Babylon were so thick that you could have four chariots lined up side by side. They could race to the end of the wall and all of them could do a U-turn and come back without hitting each other or having to worry about hitting each other. These were thick, dense, massive walls. He's looking at a legitimately incredible sight as he's beholding his kingdom of Babylon. It is an awesome thing. It is an incredible thing to behold. But while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom is departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. And his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as an eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. There's a really sad irony of what happened to this man. Do you see the, the, the really sad irony here? This is a man, right? Like what Matthew had reminded us of last week. If you are a human being, if you Adam or Eve, if you were a descendant of Adam or Eve, You were made in the image of God. You are like God. You were meant to bear the likeness of God in representing the fact that Yahweh is the king of the world, that there is a God, and that he does care for and love this world. You were meant to bear witness to that. And we have a man here whose discontentment with that. He's discontent with being like God. He wants to be God. And in that desire, he's made less than human. He's made into a beast. He's taken a level lower. He wants to reach higher and be like God, be like God, be like God, be God, be God, be God. And God humbles him to the point of being subhuman, becoming a beast, losing his mind, behaving like an animal. Uh, When I lived in Costa Rica, uh, before I came to Portland, there was, uh, we had a, a homeless problem akin to what there is over here, but in Costa Rica, just in short, to put it bluntly, they don't have the amenities and the resources that we do over here, right? In some sense, if you're going to be homeless, Portland's a good place to be homeless. There's lots of resources, there's shelters, there's places to go, there's tons of stuff here to help out. And even if you don't choose to go to a shelter or something, there's, there's food to spare, right? You can sit at the, the 205 exit and you'll probably end up making enough money at the end of the day to at least put your belly to rest, right? Give yourself some food, maybe buy some clean socks, something like that. Costa Rica, it's not like that. In Costa Rica, you, you regularly walk around and you'll see guys drinking rubbing alcohol. I mean, rub, straight rubbing alcohol, which makes you blind and makes you crazy. And they, or sniffing cement, just contact cement. And so they're walking around sniffing contact cement, which also makes you crazy. So you've got these people who are walking around, homeless guys, and they're tattered, they're frayed, they look like an absolute disaster half the time. It's, it's a really, really terrible sight. And I remember one of them in particular was just, he was, he was an absolute mess. He had hair probably down to, probably down to here. Uh, he was a shorter guy, and his, 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 his clothes were perennially ruined. Just, I mean, just, it just soiled, gross, falling apart, tattered. His face was just always angry. He would like, kind of like growl a little bit. He had no shoes on. His pants were frayed and disgusting, just like his, the rest of his clothing. And he would 
threaten people all the time. He was a violent, scary guy. I mean, he, he would walk into stores and threaten to blow them up or threaten to come in with a machete and start shredding people up. He was just crazy. This guy was absolutely nuts. Come to find out, he's the son, literally the son, of one of the most wealthy men in our city. There's a man, who, and, and, and when you're wealthy in our part, in Alajuela was the name of our city. When you were wealthy in Alajuela, it looked like it. You could tell, you knew, because there was this massive house in the midst of a bunch of not massive houses. Big, huge property, peacocks and different things like that, just touting their wealth. And this guy was that guy's son, his son. And, and, and he just got into drinking, he got into drugs, and that just did something to his mind, something, something just lost it. And now he's a perennial reminder just of shame for the entire family. Incredible. Absolutely mind-blowing. Blew my mind. We have a similar instance of that here, but it's magnified to the nth degree, right? We, we can't miss this. There's, there's no modern parallel for this. There's just no modern parallel. The most powerful, influential man on the face of the earth, okay? The dream was it went high as heaven and it went as wide as the east is from the west, okay? You, this, was, this kingdom was known and visible to all the known world at that time. This was the, maybe, maybe, what, the most powerful and influential man to have walked the face of planet earth. It's unbelievable. It's absolutely astronomical when you start to think of it that way. And here he is wandering through fields, eating grass like an ox. And he looked like a cross between a bird, a donkey, an ox, and a man. The bird donkey man. I mean, it sounds funny, but I mean, you think about, you know, a modern headline. It would read like a National Enquirer magazine. It'd be, you know, exposed king of Babylon is in all actuality is a, a bird donkey ox man. And, and he's walking around, he's grazing like a cow. And in one sense, we can laugh at it today. And I'm sure that many people did laugh at it at the moment, particularly those who felt the, the, the weight of his oppression, right? But could you imagine the humiliation and not, not just the humiliation on his part, but what was going through the minds of those who served and invested into this king and his kingdom? Uh, I, again, we dismiss this so easy as modern readers. This was seven years, seven years of Babylon citizens belonging to a kingdom that for all practical purposes did not have a king. Unbelievable, unbelievable. The most powerful empire in the world right now being made an absolute laughingstock to the known world at the time. It's incredible. But as incredible as it is, that's not the end of the story. If you want to keep reading with me in chapter 4, we're going to read uh, verses 34 uh, the rest of the chapter <clears throat> through verse 37. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven. And my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven. Heaven and earth. All of it. 
and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What's so remarkable about Nebuchadnezzar's restoration isn't so much the, the depths to which he sank or the, the immediacy of the change. Uh, I, I think the remarkable part is the, the declarations that show that he had actually come to his senses. The declarations, the things that he says that show that his reason returned to him. Right, again, 34 and 35. I bless the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. And for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. You get to verse 35. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? That phrase, or none can stay his hand. It's not that you, you get this picture of Nebuchadnezzar holding God's, trying to hold God's hand back. It's God's hand comes forward to do something and Nebuchadnezzar grabs God's hand and slaps it. And then says, what have you done? What are you doing? Like he's disciplining an obstinate kid. And Nebuchadnezzar looks at that and says, no, 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 no. None can stay his hand and say, what have you done? None can look to God and say, what have you done? What are you thinking? Why would you do it like that? Stupid, bad. No one, no one. Remember Daniel's words to him. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you when you know that heaven rules. Again, what we came upon Nebuchadnezzar and this, God, this judgment of God, it was just an outward manifestation of the internal reality that was already there, right? The pride convincing him that he, a man, pure, plain and simple, was the one who wrought all this glory and might and renown of his kingdom. And as his reason returned to him, he came to understand what Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, likely without ever having read it, right? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not, sacrifice, would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. I love that. Lebanon would not sacrifice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offering. If you cut down every cedar in the forest of Lebanon and piled it and torched it and then gathered all the beasts of the forest of Lebanon, it doesn't scratch the surface to of, of, as far as sacrifices go. It doesn't, demonstra- it doesn't scratch the surface of God's actual might, of God's actual power, of who he actually is. A whole forest set ablaze, sacrifice upon sacrifice. It means nothing. It doesn't even scratch the surface of the greatness of our God. And what David said in Psalm 39. O Lord, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. 
Behold, you've made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And one of the craziest parts, then notice what happens. His kingdom's given back to him. To this corrupt, idolatrous king. The kingdom's given back to him. One incredible thing. So in verse 30, right, he says, he's looking at his great Babylon. He's looking at the incredible city that he's he's built, that he's founded. He's boasting it. He's about to give that final boast. That's the the straw that's going to break the camel's back, bringing God's judgment. And as he's about to say it, he says these three things. Look, he, he, he praises his own greatness, the, his own majesty, and the glory. He says, look at the glory and the majesty and the greatness of my kingdom. And then in verse 36, six verses later, it comes back to him. It's given back to him. It says, at the same time my reason returned to me, in verse 36, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. It's unbelievable. I mean, it was seven years. It was seven years of humbling, seven years of brokenness. But nonetheless, it was all given back to him. And why? And why? Because he realized that these were not his own contrivances. This wasn't him building something, establishing something because of the, by virtue of his own greatness, of his own majesty and his own power and authority. It was a gift. It was a gift. God chose the lowliest of men and said, I will put you over Babylon. I will make you great. I will make this kingdom great. By the end of the day, it's to be, in one way or other, a demonstration of, of my greatness, of my kingdom, of my rule, of my authority, of my power. And to the degree that you embrace that, Nebuchadnezzar, you will thrive. And to the degree that you kick against the goads and run against it, you are to be pitied. And you will be pitied. I would dare say, brothers and sisters, that we are never more clear-headed than when we acknowledge and embrace this. Never more clear-headed than when we embrace and acknowledge that the Most High rules and that the kingdoms of men are given to whom God pleases for purposes that are most often beyond our grasp, most often beyond what we're ever going to actually know in the here and now. So in conclusion... Uh, again, like I said at the beginning, what is Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation? The, the story of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation and restoration have to do with us here today. Portland, Vancouver, Camas, Washougal, uh, Colton, wherever. You know, all of us here in 21st century America, really. Is it just that we as modern readers should learn a good moral principle? Right, don't be prideful or God will humble you. There's truth to that. There's absolute truth to that. Andrew read this morning. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Yeah, sure. (laughs) It's great. Don't be proud. Are we to pick up lessons from Daniel's interactions with the king? You're taking cues from how we're to interact with those in power? Now, I think there's probably some truth there, too. You see see Daniel's responses. He's, He's not rejoicing at the fall of this king. 
He's not taking it as an opportunity to take over. I mean, he probably could have. Let's, let's start a resurgence. Let's, let's, let's start an insurgence and let's just get things going. Let's get out of here. Let's get a new ruler in Babylon, take over for all this great stuff and get rid of this Nebuchadnezzar guy. He's out, he's out grazing in the fields right now. Put him to death, get rid of him, and let's get something different going here. He didn't. It's not what he did. He pleaded with the king to repent. It's beautiful. But is that what we're supposed to take away? Again, this happened. Space, time, and history. And I submit to you, beloved, that what this text speaks to us today here in Portland as the gathering church is the same message that Daniel gave to the king. And it's really the same message that God's people needed to hear thousands of years ago amid exile. It's the message that his people needed to heed and needed to hear before they went into exile. It's the message that every Tong tribe, language, nation needs to hear, needs to heed, and doesn't. Heaven rules. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It's not, as, not necessarily a message of application. It's not necessarily a principalization that we can take a great principle from this. It's the declaration that God is king. It's the declaration that God rules the affairs of every human soul, of every tyrant, of every ruler. It's the message that God, in a mysterious way that we just can't fathom, raises up kings and he breaks them down for his kingdom purposes. It's the message that, you know, our, the headlines in our periodicals, I mean, especially recently, right? The last few, the last five months, call even this last weekend, Right? Social media exploding with the last imbecilic thing that so-and-so did or the last corrupt thing that so-and-so did. I don't, care, I don't care what side of the fence you might be on. They're all acting like idiots. They're all acting corrupt, right? There's, there's folly and there's sin and there's corruption. Just absolutely heinous behavior all across the board. Last decision made by the Supreme Court, last person put forward as a possibility to sit in the Supreme Court as a judge, or whatever the current events might be, whatever they might be, they're, they're there and they're before us and they're announcing to us, and I think the message that they would have for us is hit the panic button, church, hit the panic button, people of God, your God's not in control, you're about to lose everything you have. The last vestiges of any sort of goodness in this country are running away. The last vestiges of safety and security are fading away. Panic, church. Panic. Lose it. Your God's not in control. But if I may, those are our headlines. I think if the veil could be pulled back a bit and we could see the headlines of heaven, I think it would read Revelation 5, verses 5 through 10. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain 
with seven horns and with seven eyes, with the, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Do you know what the periodical, the headlines in the heavens were 20 years ago? 100 years ago? 450 years ago? Is that Jesus Christ is building his church is that Jesus Christ is establishing his throne among the kingdoms of men. It's that Jesus Christ is king and Lord of all. It's that Messiah has come. It's that the one who was promised at the beginning to defeat the serpent, to destroy the enemy of our souls, the devil himself, is that the one who was promised to come to deliver his people from death itself has come and he has conquered. He has triumphed. That's the headline of heaven 450 years ago. That's the headline of heaven 100 years ago, 20 years ago, and it's the same thing today. And according to this passage, it's going to be the same thing forever and ever. Jesus Christ has established his church. Jesus Christ has established his kingdom, his rule, and his reign. And no tyrant, no fiend, no army of any sort, no movement, no political powers or authorities or anything else gets in his way. They are parts of his his great story, parts of what he is doing in the world to make all things new. And if you are in Christ, beloved, that is the best news you will ever hear. It is the only news that at the end of the day that gives shape to all of the other tertiary stories of rulers coming up and rulers falling down and fools coming into office and fools coming out of office. It's the one story that gives shape to the rest of it. It's the only story that gives shape to the rest of it, that imbibes any of it with significance. The figure is Jesus the Christ, the Lamb, the Lion of Judah, living, ransoming, conquering, and reigning over the greatest of tyrants and over the lowliest of men. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of Daniel. It is a remarkable thing to remember and to see the, um, the, the hand of God over an absolutely corrupt nation, over an absolutely corrupt ruler, and then opening up mercy even to a corrupt king. Lord, mercy was opened up to a corrupt king. Mercy was given to a corrupt king an oppressive and corrupt ruler, and mercy is given to your people. And it was so that all might know of your reign, of your lordship, of your finished work, 
to atone for sin, to forgive sin, and to create in us a people made to walk about in the world as Jesus Christ himself walked, bearing the image of God, representing the reign of God from now to kingdom come. We thank you for your kindness, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.